0: Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the Director of Music Tech Fest and this is the MTF Podcast. Now I haven't always been the Director of Music Tech Fest of course and for a long time one of the many things that I did was to run a blog focusing on independent music online and a consultancy both called New Music Strategies. I started it in 2005 and it was especially active for about eight to ten years, much less so these days. Along the way, one of the key people I encountered who ended up becoming a part of New Music Strategies was Steve Lawson, also known as Solo Bass Steve, off the internet. Steve and I have spent a lot of time in each other's company, and he's been massively influential in my thinking around independent music online, as well as the thinking of thousands of other people around the world. We've spoken at music industry events together and we've stood in for each other as fairly reasonable substitutes when one or the other of us wasn't available and a particular perspective on the internet was sought after. Along the way we've written blog posts, consulted, advised, presented, researched, lectured and also podcasted. For the most part though, Steve's a bass player, a really good one, one that ends up on the front cover of magazines for bass players one that has signature series bass guitars made for him by guitar manufacturers. He's not in a band, though. Steve has the unusual distinction of being a solo bassist. When he plays music, it's usually just him. He's also a music educator, an academic, a tech enthusiast, a parent, and one of the most prolific recording artists you're ever likely to encounter. An album a week from Steve is not unheard of. Recorded at Unconvention's 10th anniversary event in Manchester a few months back, this is Solo Bass Steve. Steve Wilson, thank you so much for doing this. It's like we've never had a conversation <laughs> it's like before. It's like we've never
1: done a podcast in the whole world ever. It's very
0: funny. So we should probably explain. Um, we have done this before in the past, but probably not in this organized a fashion.
1: No, no, we, we've never had microphones. We kind of, we normally sit around with a bottle of wine and talk rubbish into a laptop or a Zoom kind of recorder with a mic built in. So actually sitting with a proper mic and a camera. Yeah. Like this is this I don't know, maybe maybe I won't make any sense. Well, the
0: context for this I think is different because I, yes. I think so
1: for this I, I let's kind of introduce who you are and what your story is. You you play the bass by yourself for a living. <laughs> I do, which is like the worst thing that anyone could possibly do. Um, yeah, I do. I started out as a kind of bass player in bands and things, but it was always fairly restless in terms of the sort of ex- wanting to do more experimentation. And lucked into a solo gig at the end of the nineties, where somebody just saw me do a solo thing with a band and said, "Have you got a whole set?" and I said, "Yes, which was a lie, but I got a gig booked anyway yep. and it just it just did quite well and and I kind of had a take on what I was doing with a bass and a looper, which was kind of unusual at the time i wasn't certainly wasn't the first person to do it, you know, but for my most of my audience, it was a new thing, and so I kind of built a sound around that and the burgeoning career that was. Uh, me playing with other people stopped because nobody wants to hire a bass player who plays on his own. They're like well, you're not coming in my band and ruining it. Um, and so, yeah, I, that became my thing. So for the last almost 20 years, I've been predominantly a solo artist. Your thing is more than just I play the bass by myself,
0: though. Your thing has been becoming about being a sustainable artist in the world where we have an internet.
1: Yeah, although again, and, and that was kind of. That, that was never the big plan that was the way of enabling me to do what i do and i think that because so i've just i've just done a, a panel here on convention about kind of it was the, the headline was a job for life and it's kind of thinking about a life in music for me it was always about how to maintain what i was doing but I realized that what I was doing wasn't actually about music, that music was one aspect of it. I'm just professionally curious. I find things interesting. And so the mechanism by which I got to make that music and the mechanism by which I got to pay my rent while I was making that music and the way that I built an audience and the tools that enabled that all became part of that curious exploration. So as well as making music, making that music available to people was part of the big project. So it wasn't that I saw it as fragmented. It was more of a kind of gestalt approach to to the creative life and so yeah and as tools emerged as new internet uh, happenings created an affordance for a certain kind of interaction with the people who were listening to it i embraced those fairly quickly and i mean I'm, I'm, i had some really terrible observations about it early on my blog archive which now goes back to 2003 is full of my Terrible first takes on things as they appeared. There's me ranting about piracy back in 2004. going, this is awful. People stealing music. At a point when that was how I saw
0: it, and it was. What was the change for you? When did you kind of figure out actually there's something more interesting than this going on?
1: I don't know. It, it was all emergent. I mean, I think I think when when you and I first connected in sort of 2008, and I think because I think by then I'd the experience of being on MySpace was. One was a great learning experience. I I joined MySpace in the same way that all musicians did with this incredibly narcissistic focus to kind of just friend loads of people and build a big audience and the futility of that and the way that that killed the conversation about the music became apparent very quickly. And Mm -hmm. so at that point I started to conceive of a use of social media that was genuinely social and that wasn't a marketing tool, and it wasn't all the things that all the kind of people writing about, this great new way for musicians to to network and do this, it's like, well no, it's, it's just about creating a story around what you do, and so I think the whole idea of storytelling came in fairly, on, fairly early on, and one of the big advantages I had on the, that sort of, in that sort of mid noughties period when blogging was an incredibly important resource for, for musicians, was that I'm a writer as well, I'm a journalist, I've been, I was not trained as a journalist, but my partner in, uh, from back in the 90s, she was, a, she was a sub-editor and a very good journalist, and so she taught me how to write. Mm-hmm. And she would edit what I was doing, going, you can't write a 150-word sentence, that's ridiculous. And, and so, I became, so I developed this set of skills and I got to practice in magazines and harness that for the, this process of storytelling. So as that storytelling process fragmented away from being about long blocks of text, on a blog and became about Twitter and Facebook and MySpace updates, mm-hmm. I, I got pretty good at writing in small chunks and 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 kind of diarising my musical life in a way that people could engage with as an unfolding story rather than as a set of marketing tools that were, were kind of cynically planned to promote a product. The idea that the music was the end destination of a conversation, that, that at the end of people finding out what I was about, they might go, oh... Maybe I should have a listen to what he what he does mm. rather than kind of putting that at the front. And now it's sort of classic marketing thinking. it's It was very much kind of fit the model of the marketing funnel that you start with awareness and work your way down to there. But, but I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking I want to be able to make the music that I care about. And that requires some context because without me explaining what I'm trying to do, people are going to try and squeeze it into a box and they'll either come at it and go, is this – this is not very good jazz, or this is not very successful ambient music, or this is not weird enough to be prog, or this is not. There's no word. So how, okay. So how do you describe your music to other people who haven't heard it? Uh, I describe it as cinematic instrumental music. So the cinematic bit being that there's, there's there is loosely a kind of a purpose to it that I, t- I tend to be soundtracking things, in a obviously in a very abstract way. I don't, I don't actually have. There's no narrative. To no, to I it. Don't, no, I don't. I don't write stories that accompany it. Right. But I do write sleeve notes. And so a big part of the experience for me is that, is that people can, if they buy it on Bandcamp, so my stuff is only available on Bandcamp these days, because that's where I can do that, rich, that sort of more rich media presentation of it, and so that in the lyric field on all the files is the story behind the track. And so the title isn't just me going, what, what can I call this piece of music that doesn't sound embarrassing? It's me going, what, is this, what was I thinking about when I was playing this? What was I trying to get across? To be clear, th- this is uh, improvisational music. Yeah, so, I, so everything I do is improvised. So that's the other thing that, I, I mean, even, even my forays into songwriting have been, my contribution to it has been improvised, and I send it to someone else, and they go, great, I'll write a thing over the top of that. So I was co-writing recently with Tanya Donnelly out off of Belly and The Throwing Muses. And my contribution to the song that we wrote together took 15 minutes, including uploading it. Mm-hmm. She just went, do you want to send me a thing? And I went, Well, to yeah. be fair,
0: it took 35 years plus 15 well, yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. So, so
1: it was absolutely the product of that. But I, but I sat down and I literally hit record and started playing a thing. And it went through for about three minutes. And I stopped and went, OK, well, I'll do an overdub. And so I just hit record again and overdubbed a thing. And I couldn't remember what I'd just played, so I was responding to it like an improviser. And then went, well, that's quite nice. I'll send that to her and see what she thinks. Right. And she went, great, and just wrote over the top of that. So my, you know, that even at the point when I could have developed a kind of a much more sort of structured approach to songwriting, I wasn't allowed to because I was too good at the improv bit, which so is kind, of, kind, of, kind of nice and comical. Um, but yeah, so I am I'm an improviser. And so this whole thing about storytelling is not that I write soundtracks to things, it's that I play with the thing in mind. And I want to be able to talk about what that thing is. And sometimes that's emergent. Sometimes I'm not aware of that at the time. Someone listening back to it, I kind of go, okay, I, this, is, this has a sense to it that it is whatever it is. And so having a platform for storytelling was always important to me and having a way to connect that to an audience and even to, to kind of to prompt my audience to think about what it might mean that what they're listening to that when the second time they listen to it, they have more knowledge of what's about to happen than I had when I was recording it. For example, right. so, if I, so in a recorded, the first time you listen to a recorded piece, you're in exactly the same state I was when I played it, and that I don't know how it's going to end. Is that important to you? What the audience thinks of your music while they're listening to it? Well, it's interesting to me. I don't know about, I don't know about important because I don't. I, I mean, yeah, you know, it is important. I let this listen. Colors to the mast, why not? Um, yeah, no, it is important, and it's, but it's important in a way. That is about the fact that, that that's half of the experience. There's a great quote from Paddy McAloon on the Soda Jerker podcast where he says that the listener finishes the song, that a song doesn't exist until it's been heard. That kind of, that's a sort of, you know, I'm not sure if he's meaning that as a... F- is that reader response criticism sort of Umberto Eckersen? Yeah, I don't, it's, yeah or, or, or even the kind of, you know, it's it's, it's was it, you know, um, Roland Barthes, the death of the author. It's kind of, you know, that you as the creator is not that's not the fundamental thing, it's how it's received. And so I'm fascinated by that, and particularly as an improviser because increasingly more and more of my work is recorded live in front of an audience. Right. And therefore they are present within the music because it's different because they're there. That is, that the music that I make in front of any given audience is made in consideration with, and in response to their, there are gestural things that they can do. If an audience suddenly starts fidgeting and getting bored in the middle of a piece... I'm going to be consciously aware of that. I'm going to right. notice that, and I'm going to play differently as a result. If somebody starts shouting at me in the middle of a gig, I did a gig recently where some friends had bought their eighteen-month-old kid who stood at the front, and as we started, as I started playing, he started randomly shouting the titles to Kraftwerk tunes at me. i see music. That's like, surely that's got to be taught. It's just yeah, you've got, you know, he's obviously his dad's a. a, a, a a music fan and kind of had played in these things but they were Shh. and I said no no if I'd had because I, I use a uh, um, a midi controller to kind of play samples and some of them are found sound and some of them are drum sounds but if, yeah. if I had a sample set that was toddler shouting craft tunes, and I started playing that people would think I was a genius right? so that wasn't an interruption that was a collaboration <laughs> and sadly it's not on the recording I didn't actually, I didn't actually pick up on a mic right. which is a real shame I kind of need to use room mics but but mm-hmm. The music that happened after that happened in response to that having been the beginning of the show. So there was a sense in which I want to invite the audience to experience themselves within the music rather than just as passive observers of it. They, they are part of that process that, that in an epistemological sense, they, they finish the song because we don't know what it is until somebody's heard it. And the context they're listening to it in shapes how they receive it. But, but in a live setting, they are palpably influential on the actual sounds that are being made.
0: Right. You're, you're clearly not just somebody who, who uh, makes music and writes about music. You're somebody who thinks about music and, and that's led you towards academia. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that, that journey?
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, um, I, so the, the end point, I, I will just start at the end point, which is that I'm in the middle of a PhD about the audience experience of improv, as you can tell from the ridiculous language I use to describe it. That journey began, I mean, I started teaching while I was still at college in the early 90s. So teaching and explaining what I do and how I do it, even from the point of view of being, I play these notes here and this is how rhythm works to another bass player, has been central to my thought process since I was 18, 19. Um, Over time that that I got, towards the end of the 90s, when I was getting some acclaim as a performer that, that I then got started getting invited into universities to do masterclasses. And as I transitioned from session player to solo player, I would get to the end of the question and answer bit and they'd go, yeah, all that looping stuff's well and good, but how do you make a living? Right, yeah. And so I would then have to start talking about that and start talking about... Which is actually kind of my next question. Yeah, but- yeah, yeah. 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 And, it was, and it was kind of that it became a thing where I would start trying to explain how you carve out a space to do the thing you care about rather than pursuing a chunk of money. Because if you if what your concern is is making X amount of money and having X kind of house and car you don't play solo bass, you'd be a proper moron. You'd use that as your path to riches. Not the greatest get-rich-quick scheme in the world. And so you, you, you have your minimum viable infrastructure for your life is minute, and it has to be. And so I got talking about that. And then with the whole social media thing, I think because I was writing about it, and I was writing about it in a way that was, I guess, fairly unusually clear. I mean, we connected because we were two of the people that were doing that. And... And our names were put alongside one another quite often at that time as well. Being, it got to the point where we were quoting each other and not quite yeah, yeah, remembering who had written what. Exactly. I mean there was there was a point when we I remember having that conversation where it was just like, let's just we wrote it together. Like we came up <laughs> with this stuff. And there were certain things that are obviously, you know, that, that we, you you wrote in the in that the ebook. But a lot of the ideas that we came up with were things that that one of us said and the other one fleshed out. And and then when we actually met, because this was all like happening before we met. Right. And then we met and there was a very strong sense that actually what we had was a thing that we could go and explain to people, you know, in a a more structured way. And you were working in academia at the time. So for me, that was your your influence was a big route into actually doing it. So so the, the speaking gig where I got asked to do a PhD was one that you'd been asked to do and had turned down. So... So there were a couple of things. So there were two things that would happen back then, one of which was that there were places where you were banned who That's then true. invited me yeah. because you were too controversial. And it was like, but I'm saying the same stuff, I just happen to be a musician, so I don't look like I'm being destructive. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so which was kind of interesting. But there were also just gigs that you were too busy for, and one of them was this James Conference, the Joint Audio and Media Education Service in Leeds. Mm-hmm. And I went in and did this talk about a new way of thinking about music careers and stuff, and it's, it, if you watch the video of it on YouTube... It's half me talking and half kind of me stuttering and mumbling and sort of terrible Eddie Izzard <laughs> impersonation. But there's, there's some useful stuff in there. And and I found out years later that actually the department at Leeds re- rewrote their business offering based on that talk. They went, this is what we should be getting students to think about. Right. Okay. But they also said at the time, why don't you come and do a PhD? And I was like, what really? I don't even have a degree. Like I did, I did an HNC, like a level four course back in, in 93, and I don't even know if I passed that because somebody puked on the certificate before I ever got to read it. It was in a bag at a party and someone bombed in the bag. Right. So I, don't, I, don't, you know, I, I was not somebody who was, a, who was, was credentialed at all. Right. I was experienced, but not credentialed. And So they said that, and I was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. And we started talking about it, and then the financial crisis hit education in 2010 and everything went quiet. And it was a couple of years, earlier, but, I, but I think through the work that you and I were doing, I got connected to a network of academics. And so there was a there was another pivotal moment when I got invited to speak at the Microsoft Research Conference in New York, through a, someone else I'd met, through working in social media. So I kind of transitioned alongside my music career for a large chunk of, of sort of 2009 to about 2014. But I'd taken the social media lessons that I'd learned through doing my music career and was applying them to charity sector and government and all kinds of stuff and was getting paid to go and talk about this stuff. Through that, I met a woman who invited me to go and talk about Bandcamp and the idea of the gratitude economy, which is funny because it kind of came out about the same time that Amanda Palmer was talking about that stuff in her book. And I mean, I think my take on it is slightly less... Like, like, if you do this, you can get really rich from it. Because I've never done a million-pound Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever heard you say monetize my audience. No, 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 no. Yes. That's, there, there were there were things about the way that she explained it that I that certainly didn't jive with what I was doing. But there were, but there were certainly similarities in this this notion that people pay for things they're grateful for and, and building relationships with the audience. Right. And you can invite them to do that. And and I yeah, I think there was less NLP in mind in that I was wasn't kind of actually. I, well, I did felt less manipulative. So I, I got to go and talk about this in New York. And again, through that, met another network of academics who were incredibly supportive of what I was up to. And, and, so, and just after that, the Leeds people got back in touch and said, how about that PhD? And, so I, I, and at the time, by that point, I was diversifying what I thought of what I was doing as a performer. I'd formed this trio with two actors called Tory Corps, where we take conservative political speeches and set them to kind of death metal. And just make, kind of provide a context that's as evil as the words that are being said. But it made me think about performance in a completely different way. And I was hanging out with a lot of theater makers and people who were doing audience-specific theater. And I suddenly started to think about the audience in a totally different way mm-hmm. and felt that music audiences were were being condescended to the whole time. This idea that what we do is we make a noise, but we chop it into five-minute chunks so people have time to clap in between. like, And they sit and look at us. And the, the, prese- the presentational model was basically like church from the medieval days it was like a guy at the front and on a platform because that makes them visible and audible and unquestionable and then you declare your truth to the audience and they lap it up and that felt like a kind of just a a really mundane assumption for how we should perform and so i wanted to interrogate what it was that was going on with audiences so i went back to the leads people and said instead of doing a phd about solo performance i actually want to do it about the audience experience of that performance and particularly the improv bit because I was getting more and more I, I, and by that point it had been a couple of years since I'd done a gig of, of playing replaying my tunes because for for twelve or thirteen years my solo career was I would improvise in the studio create this lovely complex music and then play a simplified version of it live because i 'd have to try and learn it but it, obviously because it's improvised it was sufficiently complex to be unlearnable so I would have to simplify the start point and then it, then and then improvise off the back of it mm-hmm. but it was there was a sort of jarring thing where the origin of this music was this open, free place. And then the live presentation of it was this sort of, I don't know, it's a sort of condescension to nostalgia, this idea that people needed to hear tunes they already knew. And I don't think my audience was there. And I don't think that was... I mean, I do occasionally get people going, can you play that song? Right. Because there'll be a thing on a record that they really like. Because so this is the other part that's interesting for me about, about it is that what I do doesn't always sound improvised because it's not idiomatically or stylistically, kind of fixed to the what people think of as improv, yeah. like it's not free jazz. Um, and because I use a looper, there is inherent structure within that. There's repetition, repetition. <laughs> um, uh, and so yes, yeah, so I, I was really fascinated by what it meant to the audience to, to to be a present at the genesis of a piece of music, b to recognise someone's language within that. Yeah. So the fact that you know I don't I don't suddenly get up on stage and start playing saxophone or you know playing drums or making an omelette. like There is a consistency to what I do on stage. Sure. And there's a language and a sonic imprint to that that people recognize. So there isn't, it's not alienating. Right. So a Steve Lawson record sounds like a Steve Lawson yeah, yeah, record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, they're, they're, and so it's kind of working out what that familiarity means for them. In ter- and as much in terms of why someone would show up. Because we go to gigs to hear songs we know. Like most, most of the time when we go to a performance. Certainly within pop music. We go because there's a set list or a record that somebody is touring and we like that thing. And it's why Greatest Hits tours are always more popular than, you know, you that Bob Mould can go out and play to 200 people doing his new record or he can fill Brixton Academy playing Zen Arcade with a, a, a compilation of musicians who may have had some association with Haskadoo. That, that's, you know, that, that we have that that nostalgic attachment to music that we know and love. Mm. And so as a performer who has eschewed that, who has moved away from that, I want to understand what it is about, what I do that audiences get. Because the other, the other flip side of this is that musicians are constantly making massive assumptions about their audiences. There's also a musician like, oh yeah, my audience thinks this. You go, have you ever polled them? How do you know this? Right. But I think I'm, I, I, largely I'm in a place where I have a level of familiarity with my audience and friendliness with my audience right. that is unusual. Can I ask... If somebody who knew you at high school
0: saw you today, would they go, oh, of course, that's what he ended up doing? Or would this be a complete surprise?
1: Uh, I, having asked that question to people who I was at high school with on Facebook, oh, really? there's a range of responses. So there's a couple of people who went, I found you, and I was like amazed that this is where you'd ended up. And there are other people who are like, this is exactly what I thought you'd be doing, you weirdo. So, so what was the journey? I mean, do you... Um, The the shorthand is John Peel saved my life. So growing up, I moved from Wimbledon to Berwick-on-Tweed, which is a tiny town on the Scottish border, when I was 13. And so my coming of age as a music fan happened in a fishing town on just the English side of the Scottish border. So access to music was, you know, the record shops stocked Bon Jovi albums and Def Leppard albums. And so I went from a position where my walls were covered in these (laughs) largely homoerotic pictures of John Bon Jovi and Joey Tempest from Europe and, men who look like beautiful women, um, and th- to suddenly discovering the Pixies and Napalm Death and the Bundu Boys, 808 State, and the burgeoning Acid House thing as well. And so I had this musical explosion that happened at the same time that I took up bass. Right. So I had this... this. Uh, so as a bass player, I and I never really got into just learning a bunch of other people's songs. Like That was never my route. Whenever I, I'm on panels with other musicians talking about this, there, there's bass players wang on about transcribing other people's work. And I'm like, I didn't really, do, I can do that. I can learn gigs for, songs for a gig. Mm-hmm. But it was never part of how I became who I am as a player. And so, so there was a moment in my teens when I just kind of, when, when the two connected and when I stopped playing songs by The Who and Cream and started trying to make weird music that matched this mashup of things that was going on in my head that could have been, you know, and, and any given day I might have been listening to Yes and The Cure and Mechanic Manuruke and... Uh, King Tubby and you know and then and then I think there, when there were a number of, of hugely significant records for me interestingly enough um Spirit of Eden by talk talk was absolutely one of those and if you listen to my particularly my earlier solo work like it's so present there were very few things I ever wanted to make music that made me feel the way that music made me feel but that was one of them like that Hijira by Joni Mitchell um, High by the Blue Nile. There were kind of a handful of these things the way it's not that I sound like them, but there is an emotional resonance and a connection with the artist that I was like, I want my music to be my voice in the way that that is their voice.
0: Right. How does it? technology play a role in that for you and not just in terms of i use the internet to tell people about
1: it but but uh, technology from the ground up Yeah, so as a music maker that's the, the my, my my curiosity journey has been exactly the same as a music practitioner as it has been as a storyteller outside about the music so so i i bought my first effects multi-effects unit in to the 94 and i've been gradually upgrading since then so i and, and looping technology I did the same thing i kind of i would use it until I hit its what felt like its limitations and then swap to something else and go, okay, well, I need to be able to do that function, so I need that box. Uh, a guy in Santa Cruz came to a gig of mine and said, I'm going to make one of those. would have been 2003, he would have said it, and then it was finished at the end of 2004. And he built this multi-channel loop device that is still the most elaborate and fully featured hardware looping device called the Looperlative, and he built it, and he sent me the first one, and I came up with a bunch of features for it, and a couple of other people contributed ideas to that as well and so i you know i've been involved in product development like that mm-hmm. um and so yeah tech has been hugely important and then when i made the transition in sort of 2015 i was working on a project with a bass player and mc called divinity rocks who was, had formerly been in beyonce's band and we have this duo that happens every now and again and uh, when we were playing she pulled out a keyboard and plugged it in and started playing drums on the keyboard and i went that's great because it it suddenly felt like I could do loops and beats but without them being pre-recorded because I always wanted this sense that anything could happen. Mm-hmm. For me, live music is about the potential for it to do literature. Even if the songs get played the way they want it to, I want that possibility to be there. So technology suddenly made a whole new sonic palette available. And, I, and again, I kind of, I, I've collaborated with hardware and software developers over the years to build the tools that make what I do possible. But also the progressive iteration of the ability to record at higher and higher fidelity my live set. So I can now, rec- so now this, you, you can't tell that my live records are live until you get to the end and there's some applause. Right. You go, wow, wow really? What, wait, that was in front of an audience? You know, so I can do these impeccable recordings of me and whoever I'm working with because I decided to stick a multi-channel sound card at the heart of my live rig. Mm. So my studio and my live setup are identical. It just depends where they're set up. Um, and so, so yeah, and, and that was about recognizing that, that what I was aiming for as a performer was not that I had, there was a sort of sloppy crappy version of, of the music that happened live and then a pristine version that happened in the studio that I wanted everything I did to be at that kind of quality. And uh, and so I was going, I was getting to the end of gigs and going, Wow! I should have. I should have had that. I should have been able to release that because that felt really good. And then I started recording them and went, Okay, it really was that good. It wasn't. I'm not just tricking myself. I'm not listening through rose tinted ears. And, and you <laughs> are actually
0: releasing all of that stuff now. Yeah, but subscription, which I think is really interesting. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So I so I started. I went from CDs (laughs) in this sort of my, so my first album came out in 2000 that was recorded at my first two or three solo shows. I recorded those to mini disc and mixed them and put it out as a CD. And for the next five or six years, I would, I would release a a CD, put a thousand copies. I would press a thousand copies of a CD, recoup it and try and make some money on it. And then make the next one until 2006. And then started thinking about the possibility of digital only releases just because I did, I couldn't be bothered with the process of recouping. Mm -hmm. And so then I would make records and release them, and and in two thousand and nine, Bandcamp came online, and so it was like, oh, okay, so this is a platform where I can actually host this. I don't have to put it on iTunes, or CD Baby, or whatever. I can actually control the the environment that this is in, and it, and the you know Bandcamp has has a visual layout that makes it so that people who use Bandcamp know what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. But I can control the color scheme and the artwork, and I can bundle other things with it. I can put those sleeve notes, those stories that I wanted to tell can be both in the lyric field and gathered together as a PDF so people get a book. And so every time Bandcamp would it would introduce a new possibility, I would explore it. And, and I started to meet up with Ethan Diamond, the founder, after you introduced us. And I would meet up with him every January, and he'd go, what do you want the site to do? And it got to the point where there were probably, I don't know, three or four percent of the features of Bandcamp were things that I'd suggested at some point or another, which was kind of, that's kind of, that felt amazing to kind of go, oh, well, that was my idea. Or at least I had that idea, and somebody else had it as well, and... I helped to confirm that that was a good thing. So when they started the subscription offer, which was about people being able to charge monthly or annually for stuff, it was kind of a response to crowdfunding being this bottleneck of attention and pressure around a project and actually going, no, this, for some artists, that's not how it works. That actually their work is episodic. And so you shouldn't have to kind of go nuts on Kickstarter or pledge music for a month while you're kind of desperately trying to get people to pay for a thing but actually spread it out over time. Yeah, And so I was one of the f- three artists chosen to test that in the first place, along with Candy Says and Lowercase Noises, I think. And it was great. I mean, straight away, it was like, this is amazing. This is a totally new way to think about what I do. And I, I, my initial <laughs> offering was, I said, I promised people two, two albums, two public albums and two exclusive recordings a year. And I put out eight in my first year. Ten in my second year and twelve in my third year. So I'm now at twelve albums a year, um, and I have this enormous backlog of recordings. Because as an improviser, who's good at what they do, every gig that I do is potentially an album. I don't release everything. I'm not. I'm not. I, you know, if I record something and it's bad, I don't go. Oh, I need junk for the subscribers. Yeah. The response from the subscribers. The beautiful thing is they kind of go. How do you do this? How do you maintain this quality? And I go. Well, I did practice a lot. This wasn't, you know, I didn't wake up with a hangover one morning and go, oh, God, I've got to make records. That this is very much, feels like the conclusion of that creative journey because I didn't didn't ever want to be stuck with someone else's time frame for this. I remember talking to bands who would finish an album and the label would say, yeah, this is coming out in a year and a half's time because that's what our schedule is. Right. And and there was a Brian Eno quote where he once said that, that, you know, he said, I never read reviews because... The reviews are of something that I finished three years ago. Like I don't care what they think about that. And but whereas I can finish an album and it's out the next day.
0: And is that uh, now a sustainable model for you? Is this sort of the the economic uh, solution to the artistic journey that you've chosen?
1: Yeah. So the, the amount of money that I've now made on on Bandcamp off of so so I have I have a couple of hundred subscribers. It's not a huge amount. But between them and... So all in, I've had just over 2,000 people ever give me money on, on Bandcamp. I kind of have that statistic available to me. Uh, and it's just over 2,000 people. And between those 2,000 people, they've given me uh, as much money as it would have required 11 million streams on Spotify to, to, to get that same amount of money. So I would have to be the single most successful independent instrumentalist on the planet in order to make the same money as I've made as you know a, a moderately successful solo bass player on Bandcamp. So as, as a way of resourcing this without having to build nonsense, because I don't want 100,000 listeners. I don't want the social pressure that comes with that. I don't want the sense that I'm talking, having to talk to that many people about what I do. I don't think that's healthy for me as a person. I don't think that's a good thing for us as human beings to be given that responsibility. I haven't earned that responsibility. Being good at music doesn't mean that I should also have a voice to talk to that many people. I, what I want is a community of people who care about what I'm doing. And in days gone by, that would have been a bardic role or a jester or something that I would, have, you know, I would have been sat in a town playing songs for the people of that town about the people in that town. Right. And the internet makes it possible for that to not be geographically delineated. I don't, know, they don't All those people don't have to live near me anymore. But I still want that community. And so my 200 people, I mean, it's back to the, the idea that you, know, you have this kind of central body of fans and whether the number is 200 or 1,000, They're the ones who make what you do sustainable. Mm. And, I mean, if I got to the point, if I had 500 people doing that, I could basically live on it. Imagine that, being an artist whose entire music life is sustainable on 500 people. I mean, on 200 people, my creative practice is sustainable. I just do a bunch of other stuff around it. But I don't want to stop doing that stuff. I don't want to stop teaching. I don't want to stop writing. I really enjoy those things because... I reposition myself as not a professional musician, but as professionally curious. And all those things are, I mean, there's bad teaching and there's bad journalism that I I try and move away from. But for the most part, the things that I maintain are the things that I really enjoy. And I feel incredibly fortunate to get to do that. So you're happy? Yeah, I am. I mean, you know, because there's there's all the other stuff that goes alongside this. There's, There's the intersection between your creative life and your real life. And occasionally, you know, when you're, Real life takes a nosedive. You then have to decide where, how much of that is reflected in the narrative around your creative work. Because I could just be talking about music all the time, but actually, my music is deeply embedded in who I am or where I come from, politically so, as well as uh... politically, socially, and and yeah, I, I, you know, uh, metaphysically. You know, it's all in there. And so, a couple of years ago, <laughs> my marriage went through a rocky patch, and my wife wrote an album about me being an ass. And so, like, it was like that was I'm I'm absolutely fine with that. I don't I don't my my construct of who I am doesn't require me to pretend to be anything other than what I am to my audience. And that is that's a real luxury. For that not to be tabloid fodder but to actually be about two people finding out who they are in the wake of whatever, you know, is kind of happening in their life, but being able to do it semi-publicly. Because it's I say semi-publicly because it's public, but most people aren't interested. So the semi-public nature is that we've we've both consciously chosen to talk to a a smaller group of people. We don't market it to to tens of thousands of people at a time. You make very, very different, uh, or at least you approach music very, very differently. Oh, completely, yeah. So so she does records the old way. She goes in the studio with a producer and, and makes things. And I think her next one, I think her producer will be herself because, I mean, Lois is an extraordinary ideas person and sonically very adventurous and an amazing guitar player. But yeah, she's not. She doesn't just kind of sit down and go, "Oh, look, I've got three albums." There was that was a mistake, you know. Which I do. I I could record. There were times when I've recorded two albums in a day. And so yes, we have different practices, but we both we 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 both give each other latitudes to make music about the world that we we occupy together. And again, that's not a thing that scales well at all. I don't want to tell that story to two hundred thousand people. They don't they don't have a right to hear that. I want to tell it to a community of people who care about what we're doing and 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 are interested in how that's reflected in the work itself.
0: One one more thing, because I know we could talk forever, but (laughs) but you have a child growing up in the midst of this, and and how conscious are you of the example that you set in terms of this is my creative life, this is my public life, this is my personal life, those sorts of things?
1: Oh, um, yeah, that's a great question, because it's it's absolutely to the forefront of it, and so he is fully aware of all of that stuff. So we talk about that, and so... So even to the point where whenever I put a picture of him on Instagram, I ask him, and if he says no, so if I take a great picture of him mucking about in the park, I'll go, dude, you all right with me putting that on Instagram? And he'll go, nope. And I'll go, really, it's a great picture, you look amazing. Nope. And I'll go, great, I respect that, I'm not going to do that. Um, And so he sees it, and he sees what we do, and he, you know, I mean, he's nine, so there's times when he understands it, and times when it's like living with a tiny Nazi. You know, (laughs) that's, that's what being nine is you, you know you have this nine-year-old perception of the world but but i'm absolutely conscious of the way that that being a parent dovetails with being a creative practitioner and i don't separate the two out at all um but he's I'm fully integrated into that because i see the cre- my creative practice as a, as as a as a, a, a secondary narrative alongside the rest of my life it's all it's it's ecosystemic rather than Kind of, you know, a, a plowing a commercial furrow to make it. I'm not based on my, 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 my. I'm not fixated on monetizing a product. I'm living a life and trying to understand what it is to be human at this time and this place in history. And a big part of how I manifest that is I make music about it. Right. So music's what right happened when I run out of words. And so he sees that. So he has the words as well. And we talk about it. And he goes and he. But he goes to sleep at night listening to me when he's not listening to Bootsy. He's obsessive Bootsy Collins fan. It's great. Nine year old who cried when he heard boots. He wasn't going to play live again. but So he has this kind of, he's been exposed to music all along, and some of it quite conspicuously will kind of go, listen to this, it's great, and he got into talking heads because I told him they were great, and he does, he loves them. Um, but he also really enjoys what I do because he understands where it comes from, it's not just music. So he will remember when a thing was recorded.
0: Where does this all go? He's your age, you're retired, what does your life look
1: like? What's, what's the end goal? Like, work is more fun than fun. So I don't see myself retiring. If I retire, it's, I'm going to go somewhere where I can make more music. Right. Like the, because none of this is physically demanding. Like carrying an amp is occasionally, but like I don't have to do that at home. So so my my retirement is me sat in a you know the, sat in a room making music. I, I can imagine me making infinitely more music as a retiree because I could just because I would not hopefully by that point you know I won't be. As, ne- as reliant on it for money maybe I will maybe maybe you know my pension plan will collapse and so I don't know but but no I, I don't I don't I don't have an end game in terms of stopping doing this that this is it's how I talk to the world and um and I feel incredibly privileged to get to do that I mean it's funny because the description of what I do just sounds more like a dare than anything else like you get on stage with a bass and just play yeah, yeah like with no band no uh, and you make it up, yeah. And people go, that's terrifying. Oh go, well, no, the, what's terrifying is trying to remember a bunch of tunes for a wedding gig. How does this Bruno Mars song go? That's really complicated. That's, for me, it's hard work. Um, I enjoy doing it, but it's hard work. The rest of it is just, it's my dialogue with, with the universe. And it's, I feel fortunate that I get to do that.
0: Fantastic. Steve, thanks so much for your time. And and it's really good to sort of talk to you about the stuff in a way that isn't just us continuing an ongoing conversation, but no, to sort of capture it. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's it's a very lovely thing, and for which I'm most grateful. That's Steve Lawson. You'll find him at stevelawson.net and at Solo Bass Steve on Twitter. And that's the MTF podcast. If you want to get involved in MTF, go to musictechfest.net slash register. You can follow us on Facebook instagram youtube twitter and linkedin we're at music tech fest absolutely everywhere and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that the next one turns up automatically for free in your podcast player of choice next friday and every friday after that and in the meantime have a great week and we'll talk soon cheers